I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. I hit the ball first time, and there it was in the back of the net. Motivation, 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 the three M's. Perverse in a, in a football field with kids watching. Ladies and gentlemen, England will be playing four, four, fing two. And that boy is out to take a penalty. Eight bloody one. I'm just saying to colleague, referee's got me the sack. Thank you ever so much for that one. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Touchline, the football podcast that's not actually about football. Jack Derrida said that beyond the touchline there is nothing, but simply by virtue of being a philosopher that was talking about football, he was contributing to something. That something is football culture, and it's football culture this podcast is here to discuss. The film, TV, books, games, music, comics, toys, and anything else that helps make sense of the game we love. On this episode, we're going to be looking at Steve Barron's 2001 film, Mike Bassett's England Manager. But who are we? Well, I'm Seb Patrick, a short-tempered, bespectacled Liverpudlian, suddenly thrust into a role far beyond his experience and capabilities. And as first team coach, on my virtual left, we have a genial yes-man who you could easily imagine hosting an ITV game show in the future. It's Dennis Hurley. Hello, and thank you for that uh, glowing character endorsement. I'm not sure I can live up to it, <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll do my best, certainly. Uh, Dennis, our customary, quick, no explanation, getting to know you question. Who is your favourite celebrity Arsenal fan? That is a good question, and it's. I mean, you don't have to say least favourite because. Oh, we know the absolutely. To that well, yeah, especially when Osama bin Laden was one of the candidates. It takes some doing <laughs> to actually outdo him. My favourite, favourite celebrity Arsenal fan. Oh, really quick, uh, Tony McCoy. Okay. Well, so if Dennis is the coach, who's the assistant manager? Well, on my virtual right, it's a shady used car salesman who the legal team have asked me to point out definitely does not hold any remotely xenophobic views, David Hartrick. You know I genuinely used to work in the motor trade, don't you? <laughs> I genuinely... I'd forgotten, but yes. But I was I was a mechanic for years rather than a salesman in my as he leaps to his own defence. Do, do you own a trench coat, though? Mm, 
<laughs> I used to. That's poor, isn't it? I genuinely used to. I nearly made your uh, introductory question, do you know what an Opal is? Uh, <laughs> but instead, Dave, uh, which World Cup was the best ever for TV coverage? Uh, well, they always say the one nearest your 10th birthday is your favourite forever. So you look at Italia 90, which would have been mine, and you had, obviously, that theme tune, and it was great on telly because it were proper times. But, controversially, I'm going to have to go with, I think, Brazil 2014, which was that sort of mix of... Uh, we had some really interesting pundits on because they mixed it up a bit, but just being able to have a studio that literally overlooks the beach is <laughs> a, a quite wonderful thing for World Cup coverage, I think. We said no explanation, but I'll allow it because it's an interesting conversation. And I think it's a conversation we're going to have in more depth in lots of different ways over the, the life of this podcast. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, but we should get on to uh, our actual episode for this time around. But before we get into the meat of the episode, you'll know if you've listened to any of our previous editions that we like to kick things off with a warm-up question, because it's a podcast and that's what podcasts do. So our subject matter this month is Mike Bassett, which is a fictional mockumentary um, done in the style of classic fly-on-the-wall football docs such as The Impossible Job, and we'll get into that influence an awful lot when we talk about the film. But what I want to ask Dennis and Dave is, if you had the ability to go back in time and select one football team, club or country, and just one season or major tournament cycle to have a fly-on-the-wall documentary crew follow them around, who would it be and why? And Dennis, I'll come to you first. I have chosen the Chelsea 2015-2016 season uh, just because there was so much absolute banter going on. Um <laughs> <laughs> from an Arsenal, and we mean, from, we mean banter in a good way. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> the, the 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 original and best kind of banter from from the very first game at home to Swansea, drawing two two would be funny enough, and it was at the time because I was watching it and I hadn't hadn't even realised that there was uh, the the subplot going on with the manager and the physio beginning a fallout, and it just got better from there. It was there, there was little bits of intrigue every week. The results were terrible. The the players, inverted commas, down tools, and the manager slowly went crazy. And if you're looking for a sequel, Manchester United 2018-2019. Good <laughs> shout. Uh, well, what about you then, Dave? Uh, it's with trepidation because we haven't checked our answers with each other beforehand because <laughs> I'm worried I've got I'm going to say the same thing as Seb here uh, but it, it's got to be England at the 1990 World Cup for me um, because obviously it's it's a uh, period of time that I hold incredibly dear there are lots of parallels with Mike Bassett, which we will go into, <laughs> but you know you've got Gazza at his peak. You've got other players there who are huge characters. You've got these ridiculous things that I've I've tweeted before, like Nigel Kennedy coming in to play an impromptu concert as they're all eating their dinner, and there's footage of it that was ripped from a, a an episode of Saint Greavesy, and you can imagine how impressed they all are to be listening to a bloke violin in. <laughs> um, and just some of the stories that that have come out. There's 
the Gaza, the famous Gaza Doug Ellis story, which I've tweeted, which I won't go into, but if just if you go onto my Twitter feed, you'll see it as my pinned tweet, which is just incredible. It just gets better and better. And there's all the stuff, you know, Gaza playing tennis in the midday sun on the day of the semi-final because he thought it would be a good idea and he was bored and some of the stuff Brian Robson got up to that unfortunately got him sent home in the end and yeah just a just a crazy little period of time really it would have been fascinating to have access to it all um I wasn't aware of the Brian Robson stuff is it broadcastable well there's there's always been this big thing about how he got injured and had to and, and got sent home and there are about three versions of the story and as more time has gone on it's become very clear that the version of the story is not that he did it in training it's not that he did his toe going up a set of steps it's that he got absolutely shit-faced with Gaza and a couple of others and they were mucking around in one of their rooms and he had managed to get Basically, somebody dropped uh, the bed on his foot, <laughs> which is it's not advisable when you're at a World Cup, uh, and broke a bone in his foot. Jesus. Um, that person may or may not have been Paul Gascoigne. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. so why wasn't Gaza sent home so for being the, the, the big donkey? Because basically, I think the long and short of it was the reason all these stories exist is because... They never admit they shouldn't have been drunk in the first place, so they never admitted it to the medical team. Okay. Uh, so they it, it became oh I got a knock in training yesterday and it just seems to have miraculously flared up after about a million bottles of <laughs> Peroni. Um, but that you know that is that is one story of a great many stories from from that tournament and there's a there's a book Dennis which. It's my favourite book of all time. It's all played out by Pete Davis, who um, bizarrely is is now uh, runs the fruit and veg counter at my local Sainsbury's. <laughs> um, but it, it's incredible because he has access to the England camp. And when I say he has access to the England camp, he's literally wandering in, wandering in and having a swim in the swimming pool next to John Barnes and stuff like that. <laughs> it's just like crazy looking back at it now but uh yeah that would have been a that would have been an eventful few weeks to have been with that squad yeah i'd heard of all played out i've never read it but i'll certainly put it on my list it uh, the thing is uh, like without going off on one or going off on a tangent here i it all played out is the book i recommend to everyone okay like i get asked a lot because of the day job and everything you know what is the best football book of all time I genuinely, in my heart of hearts, believe that is the best football book of all time. And it's no coincidence that it's not really about football, <laughs> you know, as which is, as we sit yeah. here doing this podcast, <laughs> is right in that wheelhouse, you know? Okay. Yeah. Um, well, actually, no, I, I hadn't picked that, but I wasn't a million miles away. Uh, I had picked uh, a World Cup in the 1990s, uh, but I had picked the Republic of Ireland squad at USA 94 um, <laughs> because I think you can never have enough footage of USA 94 and, and everything that happened there and the look of it and the feel of it and the atmosphere of it. Um, everything that went on with Ireland at that World Cup, from the win over Italy uh, to the John Aldridge madness against Mexico, <laughs> uh, 
Um, who wouldn't want to see more and more angles of, of that incident over and over again? And I think as well, just looking at that island squad in terms of personalities, if you're looking at a documentary to follow them around, I think that island squad is in that perfect sweet spot um, because you've got kind of still some of the old hands. Um, you know, you've you've got Bonner, you've got Dennis Irwin, you've got Houghton, you've got Aldridge, Staunton, but you've got uh, you've got Paul McGrath, obviously, but you've got Roy Keane, uh, you've got Jason McAteer in there, always going to be fun in a fly on the wall documentary. Um, so I just think, yeah, I think I think that would be an awful lot of fun. I, I am kind of surprised that Dennis didn't go for that, but maybe it was a bit too obvious. Well, if um, if, if I was going to choose an Ireland World Cup fly on the wall one. Uh, it would have obviously been 2002 and Keane. Oh, well, I was going to say, because then, then you can do the sequel and do, and oh, do 2002 okay. as well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, showing those as the as the two the two ends of a story, I think. Are, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I suppose I just probably don't want to be seen as a professional Irishman in this, uh, in, in this podcast. <laughs> I think it's a bit too late for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to say, Dave, I mean, I, everything you said is, is not without appeal. Um, I just think, especially given that you've already made the case that it's been so well covered in a book, I do think England at Italia 90 is already one of the most covered things in football. And are, are we wasting that time travel fly on the wall opportunity when we already have so much footage and so much anecdote and oral history of it? Um for that reason, I I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one to Dennis because the more I think about it, even though it is just a Chelsea Premier League season, um, I'd like to be a fly on the wall with Jose Mourinho getting sacked. Um, I'd certainly like to be a fly on the wall for all of the 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 happening and then the fallout of the Eva Carnero incident. In fact, I think that's probably what you'd hinge the entire thing around. I'd really want to see more of that because I basically just want to see Mourinho squirming. Um, plus, after all of it, you also get half a season of a documentary of, uh, of Gus Hiddink. So um, I think there's entertainment value all around in that. Uh, I think we'd need to have maybe also sent the cameras to Leicester on occasion just to, to catch a little bit of that. Um, but otherwise, I think, yeah, I think, I think I'd quite like to see that. And, and uh, uh, it, it, ends, it ends with Eva Carnero's wedding, I suppose, as the... <laughs> it's a disgrace this since we've started this podcast the only one of these I've won was a victory I awarded myself <laughs> we're doing a, a Brian Glover from Kez you, you've also made it Dave so that nobody else can give the win to themselves again because it you know it, it just comes across <laughs> no, don't you worry I'll give the win to myself again <laughs> well speaking of people who would probably give wins to themselves if they could is that a, that's not a very good segue I'm going to take it anyway uh, let's move on to our main subject matter uh, for this episode. As we've already mentioned a couple of times, on this edition we're going back to movies. We're looking at the 2001 film Mike Bassett, England Manager. But before we go any further, let's take a listen to a clip from the film. Half-time in La Bombonera Stadium and England trail Mexico by two goals to nil. Have you heard what the crowd is shouting? Bassett's a bastard's a bastard's a They shouldn't be shouting at me! They should be shouting at you!
England lose 4-0. So, Mike Bassett, England manager, um, was written by John R. Smith and Rob Sprackling, directed by Steve Barron, uh, best known probably at that point for directing the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Uh, And it stars Ricky Tomlinson, Amanda Redman, Bradley Walsh, Philip Jackson, Dean Lennox-Kenny, Phil Jupitus and Martin Bashir playing himself. It was released in September 2001, earned a box office total of just under £3.5 million, and doesn't have enough reviews on Rotten Tomatoes to have a score on there, but it's rated at an average of 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb. Now, I do a lot of podcasts about films, and in them we usually try to run through the events of the film chronologically and discuss them as they come. Um, But this always ends up involving spending about an hour and a half talking about the first 45 minutes and then struggling to cram in the remainder. So what we're going to do here is give you a quick synopsis of what happens in the film from start to finish, in case you've forgotten or even if you're listening to us not having seen it, and then we can delve into some discussion points. So, Dave, if you'd like to do the honours... Uh, Ahead of the 2002 World Cup in Brazil, England manager Phil Cope suffers a near-fatal heart attack. With three games of the qualifying campaign to go, the FA desperately look for a successor, but can't find a Premier League or Continental manager willing to take the job. So they turn to Mike Bassett, a journeyman player-turned-manager who's just won the League Cup with Norwich, here sponsored by Mr Clutch, which is a lovely touch I like. Uh... Bassett brings his trusted backroom staff of Lonnie Urquhart and Dave Dodds with him and recalls mercurial, hard-drinking midfielder Kevin Tonka-Tonkinson to the squad as England look to secure the three points they need to ensure qualification. From the outset, Bassett insists that a traditional 4-4-2 formation will be the best route to success. In their first qualifier against Poland at Wembley, Tonka scores an early goal to give England the lead, but they ultimately lose 2-1. Bassett attempts to give the squad a boost by taking them to an experimental sports science centre, but a series of mishaps severely depletes the squad, who then go on to lose 3-0 away to Belgium. The ensuing negative attention from the press and fans puts a strain on Bassett's family life, while Tonka is arrested for drunk driving. In the final home game at home to Slovenia, England labour to a 0-0 draw. However, a surprise 2-0 win for Luxembourg over Turkey sees England miraculously qualify for the World Cup anyway. A boy in England head to Brazil, but their first group game is a tedious 0-0 draw with Egypt. Continuing to experiment with new formations, England then lose 4-0 against Mexico. Things go from bad to worse when Mike's wife and son move out of the family home, while Lonnie is sacked after punching Mike in the face during an argument. After a drunken night out with Tonka is captured by the tabloids, Mike is called to a press conference where he is expected to resign, but instead dramatically announces in a Rudyard Kipling-inspired speech that he'll be staying on as manager, and that England will be returning to their 4-4-2 formation for the final group game against old enemy Argentina. We will come back to him returning to that 4-4-2 formation. The Argentina match arrives and England once again look to be be playing out a 0-0 draw until Tonka is brought off the bench with minutes to spare. The talismanic midfielder scores a controversial late winner that sees him combine both aspects of Diego Maradona's famous 1986 goals, putting England through to the knockout stages. Following this triumph, we're told that a resurgent England make it all the way to the semi-finals before being beaten by eventual champions Brazil. On the plane home, Bassett reflects on how he might now step down from the job before a glorious reception from the waiting England fans and his family convinces him to stay on for the next four years. Thank you, Dave. Very well put. Okay, so I, I don't think it's any secret that Dave and I are already very, very familiar with this film, and I don't think we've made a secret of our opinions of it 
uh, on the podcast prior to now. Uh, but Dennis, you had not seen the film before watching it to do on this very podcast, so I'm really interested to just hear initially your your opinions and your before we kind of get into specific details, just your general reaction to this film. What, what did you think of it? Um, at at the risk of being excluded from the gang, I would say <laughs> that the IMDb rating is accurate or maybe slightly generous. <laughs> and maybe maybe it's the fact that it's taken me 18 years to get around to seeing it and it's it, it's not as it's not as fresh or it's not as um how would I put it you know it, it not as original maybe as it was back then you know when it it probably did have would have had more of an impact on me like I I enjoyed it I I, I don't I don't dislike it, but I probably won't be watching it again if that doesn't sound too harsh. Did you find it funny? There were bits I laughed at, and there were bits I groaned at. <laughs> mm. okay. Yeah, it like you see, I I I had already heard about the Benson and Hedges joke. I remember hearing that at the time. Um, <laughs> The, the the war the war bits did, did make me laugh definitely like when in his first press conference where uh, he's asked about his capabilities and he says look at all the other people who've done it and look how badly they did it <laughs> <laughs> or uh, um what, what was it the the phrase licorice arsehole uh, definitely drew uh, <laughs> drew a smile and and. Uh, Three across the middle and one in bloody Pentonville. Pentonville. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let, let let's not do too many of the jokes now because I want to come on to favourite bits later. But uh, I don't. You, from the sound of it, those are going to be your only ones. So. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's probably just me watching it too late. I think is the is the problem here. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Um, well, Dave, so now that we're just a two-person podcast, um, uh, che- cheer me up and, and tell me about well about your, your feelings on the film and also your, your history with it. Um, I, you know, I presume you watched it a fair bit longer ago than Dennis, but did you watch it when it originally came out? Yes, I did, yeah. Uh, I, we will talk... I think we need to talk about the marketing of this film, which mm-hmm. I know is probably something Dennis is, is not going to be able to contribute much on but the marketing yes, for this film as we'll come that. on to is <laughs> is terrible so i went into it not really expecting uh, what it is which is it, it, it's a far more intelligent pastiche of english football than mm. people give it credit for we'll come on to specifics but things like the depiction of the fa and the depiction of the press pack and, uh, you know, yeah. Mike imploring the press to get behind England at times and stuff. Uh, there were real-life parallels there. Now, the thing about that is I've sort of discovered and really looked into those aspects with, you know, I don't know how many viewings I'm on now, probably uh, certainly into double figures by quite an embarrassing amount, I'm afraid, Dennis. Um <laughs> But the the one thing I like about it is, I, I still think it's genuinely funny, and I, I've mm. I've watched this with my wife, um, who dislikes football an enormous amount, and you know even she was giggling along. It it just it it's it's an hour and twenty minutes long. It never outstays its welcome. I think the majority of the jokes that landed when I first watched it still land now um, exactly the same way I think Ricky Tomlinson is absolutely superb in it I think it's a really really good performance there's one or two rather wooden performances around him this is quite early in Bradley Walsh's acting career um, he's he's a very decent actor now in my was, personal yeah, he opinion had, he hasn't hit his Doctor Who heights here no yeah. at, and, at I, and this, I don't mean that sarcastically he's he's fantastic in Doctor Who yeah at, at this stage he's he is uh, insanely wooden at times but I, I, I just I think it's far cleverer than people give it credit mm. for and I think you've also got to give it credit for some of the football action which we'll go into a bit more oh, detail yes. on and I think they're enormously helped by having Mr Teckers himself Andy Anser as the football consultant on it and I think the, the more times I've seen it you sort of appreciate the work that's got gone into it to capture some of the subtleties so you know Dennis will do approximately 40 to 45 minutes later about the admirable uh, kit and training wear that England used for this tournament but it's just the little things like that where they the, the things they've created the way they work in the footage of the old Wembley and the England Germany game in particular and the crowd from that game the goal etc it's. I, I just think it, it. It's one of those films that it never had a massive budget. It, it. It was marketed wrong, but it still. I don't know. I think. I personally think it still stands up incredibly well. And I know you've. You didn't you create a completely different potential DVD cover for it? <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll, so. we'll stick that on Twitter when we publish the episode because I. Yeah, I. I, I mean, I. I don't disagree with pretty much anything you've said there. I, I feel very. I didn't actually see it at the time that it came out, and I don't know if I was put off by the marketing or just if it came out I mean I would have been at or going to university when it came out and I didn't go and see a lot of films then because you know I didn't have any money um, but I remember I remember watching it probably about four or five years after it had come out I remember renting it on DVD 
And I definitely had an expectation of what it would probably be like based on that that dreadful marketing, that dreadful cover, that dreadful tagline. And we'll, we, we can launch into that in a minute because I think it is worth talking about up top. Um, and yeah, and ever since then, you know, like you, I've, I've watched it many times because I find it a really... It's, I find it a really comforting film to watch because I know I'm always going to enjoy it because, yeah, it does always make me laugh. Yes, there are a lot of quite cheesy gags in it. Um, mm. It does fall foul of, um, you know, kind of a lot of the traps that kind of British comedy, particularly of that era, would fall into. But I don't think it does it that often. And I, I think what's so great is that you've got you've got a combination of, you've got jokes that are about football and specifically and again, we'll, we will kind of get into this, but it's not just jokes that are just about f- football generally. It's jokes that are specifically about the history of English football. Um, yeah. So the, so they make me laugh. Um, but, you know, there are actually just kind of pure comedy bits that make me laugh as well. Um, you know, I do think Dean Lennox Kelly overdoes it a little bit in places, but I will never not laugh at him saying, oh, bollocks, I've shit myself um, <laughs> when he's in the gym. <laughs> You know, uh, it, it is. It's just I, f- I find it funny all the way through, um, and I enjoy that it is this kind of this affectionate, well-made football world. And yeah, what really, really bugs me is that it was sold in two thousand and one as a, a British comedy kind of of that era, and we were in this kind of post-train spotting Notting Hill sort of British film and British comedy film was kind of thriving for a while. But then that led to a lot of bad ones being made as well, and a lot of bad comedies. So yeah, you know, you'd, you'd had sort of you'd had Train Spotting in '96, you'd had The Full Monty in '97, um, you'd had Lockstock in '98, Sliding Doors, Shakespeare in Love, East is East. But then, sort of at, at around the turn of the century, aside from the fact that you'd had Notting Hill in '99 and, and Billy Elliot in 2000, you'd also had things like uh, Gregory's Two Girls. Uh, oh. Guesthouse Paradiso, the the really not very good bottom movie. Kevin and Perry go large. You know, you had all these kind of these bad spin off type things. You had had Bridget Jones in two thousand and one. The Parole Officer, which isn't terrible but isn't great. Um, so you know, there there is just that thing of a lot of money um, and a lot of attention was getting thrown at a lot of British comedies at the turn of the century. It would reach its nadir. Um, with Sex Lives of the Potato Men, which is the infamous, like, worst comedy film ever made that came out in 2004. Um, but then Shaun of the Dead came out in 2004 and sort of heralded a, a sort of new direction for, for British comedy films. And I think with, uh, with with the stuff that was going on around it, with the fact that Ricky Tomlinson was, was fresh off the Royal Family, I think the Royal Family must have had their second or even third series by that point, so he was very much in the public eye for playing that character and for, you know, I love the royal family, but I think it did get Ricky Tomlinson a reputation um, for being a sort of sweary, um, you know, kind of comedy actor type who would just get thrown into lots of things. And the the cover and the poster in which they just, it's just four shots of Mike where they've given him four different David Beckham inspired haircuts. And it's just, and I think it's like the tagline is something like the 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 ever changing face of English football has got a new mug, mm. and it's just meaningless. It's just terrible design, and that's like that that poster and that DVD cover is like the only marketing for it. And I just don't understand how you you don't take this film and market it as here is a comedy for people who love football that will be full of jokes that they will get that's about football. Oh, and also, by the way, it features probably the best ever shot 
football action in a film, at least at that level. I know, uh, Dave, you're going to talk about things like Jimmy Grimble, but I think as a as a film that shows football at the top level being acted, I don't think there's a film better than this. And I just I don't know why you don't play up those attributes. The other thing, so I designed a kind of alternative DVD cover to print out for it. That's just it's fairly simple, but it's just I just think it's it's it it. Um, reflects the film better than the real marketing. But I am very pleased with the tagline that I came up for, which is, the impossible job just got harder. <laughs> yeah, the the marketing made it look like a, like a real farce, mm. you know, knockabout comedy. And it's it's not, It's there's actually more to it than that. And um, yeah, you, you've done well really, Dennis, to sort of avoid all of that because <laughs> it, it was impossible not to have a preconception or two, really. What I'd say is that the lack of marketing, or as Seb says, the bad marketing, probably was a factor in me not going out of my way to ever watch it. Yeah, um, and I think that's yeah. true of a lot of people, and that's yeah. <laughs> a real and shame. I, I do have, in my notes, I do, I did... Um, I did take uh, note the fact that the action scenes were very good, um, certainly compared to what was, you know, what what you'd see at the time, you know, like Dream Team or or the likes of that. Uh, It was, it was certainly a cut above that. Yeah, well, that 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 is. You, I mean, we that has led us on to what was actually one of the first things that I that I wanted to talk about as a specific, which is which is the veracity of the film, and we you know, we have already touched on it a bit. But so if if you put aside for a second the historical stuff and the parallels, which we're going to come to, I think if you if you just look at this film purely as how well does this film put football on screen and I mean in terms of how it's shot and I also mean the kind of obviously it has to build a world for itself it has to do things like Dennis this is where you'll come in kits and and, and squad numbers and you know b- fictional players and a, and a football universe to live in I mean how, how do you think it compares to other attempts to put football on the screen putting it aside as a comedy and, and as a parody just purely as a football film, where do you think this sits in relation to others? Um, I, I would say, like, completely silly on the fence, better in some regards and then worse than others. Um, and I, I, I've tried not to sound like a complete kit nerd or pedant, but the presentation is very important with something like this. And, you know, it, it's the England national team and they look like a Sunday league team. I think the, the fact that, you know... You don't have the Three Lions crest. Just take it's something. It's the lack from a, of badges. Yeah, yeah, like it. It looks like a Pro Evo kit. I mean, um, it does look like a Pro Evo kit, but I do kind of. I think they've done the best they probably could in the circumstances oh, of not being able to have a license. Yeah. And I, I wonder actually as well, bearing in mind that this film did have cooperation to to shoot in places like Wembley just before it got knocked down and, and Lancaster Gate yeah. just before, they, or as they were moving and out. Bishop Abbey. And, and, yeah, Bishop Abbey, yeah. And I, I, th- I wonder if part of it was... Like I find it interesting that the kit is not white and navy; it's white and black, which which is probably my main issue with it because it makes it look more like a Germany kit, even with the red numbers. Um, but I do wonder if they were kind of forced into that. It was like you can't make them look too much like the real England. Yeah, I I at least like that. There's consistency though. Like internally, there is consistency. They the, the kits are always right in the world that you're in. I think. Well. Uh... In England playing Argentina with both teams and home kits was something that grated with me a little bit, <laughs> I have to admit. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Or, or even the fact that England were playing in squad numbers in a qualifier, which even to the present day, they're still one of the only few teams who still play 
one to eleven, and I realized I was sounding like such a nerd, you know, pissing on the, these aspects of it. But the whole thing has to knit together. I think just from a, an optical point of view, even the fact, and this is like this is is way beyond the pale. But the fact that you know it, it listed the players and showed their details and listed the honours won and you'd two guys both with Man United who had different sets of honours even though they were there at the same time like they, yeah, they, they, have they been there for the same duration though? Uh, <laughs> yeah but like they, they will say one they both won the league in 97 and oh. 2000 or whatever and then only one had the UEFA Cup in 99 and I don't mind changing the honours won in real life, and maybe it was the case that one had a season-long injury and missed the UEFA Cup final. But <laughs> it, at the same time, it could just be sloppiness, like saying Alf Ramsey played four four two, which <laughs> did stick out like a sore thumb to me. Um, but you know, the these are uber nerdy kind of points, so I don't want to. Uh, on the on the flip side, I'll give it credit in that I didn't know that. Um, that they use the Vauxhall Astra as a base for one of their cars. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing is, though, Dennis, the stuff you point out, I think, is actually valid because there, there's a weird thing where uh, I think there's choices made by a director and editor and choices made by the writers because there are some really, like, fantastically detailed gags in there. So... Like for instance, the uh, you know I I assume I'm not giving them more credit than than they deserve, but like the gag about splitting training into two sides, mm. you know the <laughs> yeah, first yeah. half of the year and then the first half of the month. That's a great where that question. comes from is there's <laughs> there's quite a rich history if you go back to the the very sort of origins of football that what they used to do to to they didn't used to pick the teams they used to split them. Uh, like smokers against non-smokers, yeah, yeah, and and stuff like that, and that sort of gag has definitely come from that sort of place. So you're quite right; those little fine details do sometimes grate a bit because you you have got this level of detail where you have got you know Bishop Abbey, you have got the old Wembley, like you say, uh, and everything else. So I I get that, Dennis. I get and that. But I, I will give credit even for the fact that all the players are born in the first half of the year, which like you know that has that that's a theory that has some basis that the guys born in the earlier part of the year you know, were bigger and stronger at underage level and so stood out more and advanced more. Like if it's it's featured in Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell and various other books. So, you know, I was even giving credit for that in my notes as well. Like that, like mm. you say, there are these nice little touches that, you know, that football fans will get. Uh, another one that I love is they, when they, they're doing the, the pitches of Mike's football career, they're all from Panini stickers. Um, some of them I recognise and a couple that I've never been able to completely track down. One of them is um, actually a Sam Allardyce sticker. <laughs> yeah. and you can imagine the Photoshop work required was fairly minimal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and even, even just the fact that the house is like the house someone involved in football at the time would have lived in you know <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i can't i can't actually you know express that or articulate it any better but it just 
seemed right. Yeah. I mean, Dave, how do you, with sort of the the match action, um, which as I say, you know, I, I, I think really is, I mean, there's not loads of it in the film, but I think what there is is a real selling point for the film because this does something that I don't really see a lot in films, which is that it does show you the actors themselves running and dribbling and tackling each other and shooting and shooting past goalkeepers. And it never looks too staged or unrealistic to me compared with other ones that we've seen. What do you think? Well, I think the the first thing to say is that it, it, Dean Lennox Kelly is actually a very good footballer. You can yeah. see that. You can <laughs> see from the way he moves. So that that helps an enormous amount when Tonka's on the ball. But there's often like two ways of approaching match accent action. So the the first is where you get like a when Saturday comes, where you you get this horribly jarring blend of acted football. Mm. and blended into like a real-life FA Cup tie against Manchester United, and it just doesn't work. Whereas what you've got here is... I <laughs> like, I quite like the film Mean Machine. Please <laughs> st- keep listening to the football podcast that we're on now, please. I, it, it is an admission. I quite like that. But what they did to get the football there is they, they only had a couple of action sections that they uh, wanted to specifically capture but they played to to get the rest of the action they literally played every other day for like a fortnight a 90 minute game of football so they recorded all that footage so they could get loads of stuff out of it and I get the feeling here with quite a few shots that there were specific beats to hit but with some of the other action they were literally just playing football Mm. and that is you know, I think that is probably the the best way to capture football because it's not scripted, is it? Mm. But even uh, like the the shot behind the goal um, in the Poland game is there is Haman's free it's kick. It's the Germany. Isn't it? I was going to ask if you knew that. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's the and one that's bit why where they use a bit of real. Yeah, that's why England's goalkeeper throughout has, <laughs> has to have a ponytail, a ponytail. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's got to match up with that. And that level of detail to be able to get a shot like that, I think is clever. I think it's a clever way to do it. The other thing they do uh, throughout, without getting too nerdy in sort of the mechanics of film, they find lots of ways to keep to cleverly keep shots very narrow. Mm. So you've got you know like when um, uh, when what's his name Wacker goes Wacker gets sent mad, off. <laughs> and it's you you see it on the security camera footage. You yeah. Know, it's, it, it switches to security cam. You get lots of shots of Mike sort of looking out. Like in when they're at the World Cup and it, they're in the lower dugout. I mean, when have you ever seen a lower dugout yeah. at a World Cup stadium? But what it allows you to do is like keep that nice, mm. tight, cropped shot, have a green screen behind so you can drop a crowd there as and when you need it. You give a viewpoint where you can look out and not necessarily have to see the entire of the pitch. Mm. So I think they're actually very, very clever in the way that they film it and I mean like Dennis mentioned some of the football that was being filmed around this time like Dream Team and what have you was dreadful I mean it, it really was because as I said as soon as the football becomes scripted it's it's almost impossible for it not to stand out like a sore thumb 
but yeah, I, I, I think it's particularly well captured, really. I think it probably helps that you don't have to see many goals scored in this film. Um, because one of the problems that films always have, and we discussed it on on previous episodes, and particularly when we we're talking about it on Goal TV, um, is you know, is goalkeepers are really difficult to to film, and it's hard to film a goal going in that looks like the goalkeeper has tried to save it. And actually, in this film, um, it, it, we we see England get scored against uh, by by Poland, but it's footage of the, the Germany goal. We see England score against uh, Poland, which is an interesting thing I realised on watching this uh, for this podcast, which I'd never realised on my many viewings. Is England only score two goals in the entire narrative of this film, um, and it's the very first goal in the film and the very last goal in the film, and they're both scored by Tonka. Uh, mm. But you have Tonka's first goal is I think the only goal that you properly see. Um, like scored from a kind of TV type angle, yeah, yeah, and, they, and, yeah. and I think the the director says on the commentary that it was about the seventeenth take to get him to do that, but it mm. looks realistic. It looks really good, yeah. But I think by minimising mm. how much they have to do that, because other than that, you've got that Poland goal, which is real footage. You've got the the handball goal, which obviously um, is an unusual goal, so so can look weird. Um, and you've got the goal that they shoot. The own goal for Scotland uh, against Ethiopia was specially shot as well. But again, that's a farcical comedy goal, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll, co- we'll come to that <laughs> when we talk about favourite moments in yeah. the film. But the, I, they make a clever decision with a handball goal as well because they make the ball come back far enough off the crossbar yeah. so that the, 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 the keepers, he's got no chance of getting there because yeah. the closer you have Tonka and the keeper the more unrealistic it's going to look. So the fact that the keeper is doing nothing but just sort of flailing out there and Tonka's handball is is even better for the fact that it's actually completely unnecessary because you can clearly see he could head that. Yeah. No problem whatsoever. <laughs> that uh, For me anyway, that's, again, it's quite a clever decision because mm. you're almost taking one half of it completely out. You know, So when you do have to script football... The, the the less pieces on the chessboard you can have the better to be perfectly honest with you because the more people involved the worse it is invariably mm. just just one more thing on on the filming because you you mentioned the kind of cleverness of having to do all these kind of tight shots and work around things i think it is just worth kind of uh, briefly summarising, and for people who kind of don't know the specifics, I mean, people who haven't sat there and watched it with Steve Barron's commentary like I have. Um, but, you know, the, the lengths they went to to kind of capture the footage, obviously, I think it is quite well known that they shot at Wembley after Wembley had been closed um, and before it got knocked down. They had to relay the pitch. Um, but they, you know, so, so they shot match action on the pitch at Wembley. They got fans in a particular corner and then blended it with a combination of actual England fan footage from other games. Uh, and computer-generated fans to fill the stadium. Um, but what impressed me was that for the World Cup, they went to the Maracanã, um, and they did actually shoot there, and the stuff with them at the dugouts and stuff it was shot there. But they did a combination of... They were allowed on the pitch, I think, for a total of about half an hour to film. Um, but all of the other stuff, basically what they managed to capture was there was a match going on, and they were allowed to spend a bit of time while there was a match on filming the characters at the sidelines um, so they could capture footage that they could then um, blend in. And I just think throughout, and again, there's other moments as well, I think what what this film shows throughout is a really good sense of um, it's aware of the resources that it has and the limitations of the resources that it has. And I think there's so much clever lateral thinking 
um, that goes into stitching together what they have into something that feels coherent. And I think, and again, you know, we will come to it in more detail, but the I think particularly when they go to Brazil, there's just a really strong feel to it. It feels right. It feels like a World Cup. I think my favourite bit of match footage is actually the nil-nil draw against Egypt. Yeah. Um, that beautiful, slow-motion, boring bit of footage that just... It gets across so strongly what it feels like to watch a boring game in a World Cup. Um, I just think that, yeah, just you know, just just it it feels like football. This film more than I think any other. Um, but Dave, it's as well as feeling generally like football. I, there is so much in this film that is so specific, and I think I wonder if part of the problem in terms of people not regarding it highly is if people watch it. And a lot of those jokes and references go over their head. So let's 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 dig into a bit of that. Talk me through some of the ways in which this film is making incredibly specific and funny jokes about the history of English football. Well, before before anything else, you just look at the structure of it. If anybody has seen the Graham Taylor documentary, this, this Mike Bassett is essentially supposed to be a sequel to it. The narration is in the same style. Uh, the Graham Taylor Impossible Job opens with the uh, Bill Shankly quote, you know, <laughs> white written on a black background. We get the quotes in Mike Bassett. So there is a there is a direct parallel that makes me smile right from the off there anyway. Then you've got the depiction of the FA and... Mm. The depiction of the FA as a bunch of old white men in a boardroom, smoking, uh, <laughs> doodling on pictures of paper, etc. is, you know, let's be honest, we're in 2019, a lot has changed. That would not be a fair comparison now. But at that point, I mean, Dennis, were you aware of how sort of backward our FA was at this point. Yeah, nearly as backward as, as the FAI. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, yeah, I'd have been aware of, you know, the, the Sir Bert Millichip era. Um, and, yeah. and it was something we discussed as well um, with the Damned United, you know, these these kind of entitled fat cats smoking cigars in yeah. in in oak panel rooms and just do, yeah. doing what was best for them and not necessarily what was best for english football so then you've got um you've got the depiction of the the press and the press is sort of a stylized version of the english press of the last 20 years towards bobby robson towards graham taylor um towards glenn hoddle um, and you've got again. There are direct direct parallels with the Taylor documentary. I don't know if any of you watched the Taylor documentary recently, but it's impossible to watch these one after the other mm. and not see that. I mean, even down to uh, clothing choices. Genuinely, <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's the, the the trench coat on uh, Lonnie Urquhart. Lonnie Urquhart being Laurie McMenemy. Uh, do you know? Do you know what my 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 favourite little parallel that I'd never clocked before um, until a little while ago? I, I watched Impossible Job and kind of it was the first time I watched it for years and years. The fact that Don't Drop Us 
is a direct quote because it's a bit when Paul Gascoigne and Carlton Palmer are dicking around yeah. um, to the camera and, <laughs> yeah. and Gaz is like pretending to be someone. He goes, oh, don't drop us, boss. Drop the other fella. And it's like, yeah. that is exactly that is Tonka's don't drop us. And I just well, I, this, you know, it, never clocked that. <laughs> yeah, this is it. And, uh, you know, when, when he does get dropped at the end and he goes absolutely mental and loses it in the corridor and what have you, that's a direct parallel to when he was told he wasn't going to the 1998 World Cup mm. um, there, and there are loads of these moments in there I, you, the, the the song, getting oh, Keith, getting Allen, Keith in, Allen to do the song Yeah, the yeah. whole point, uh, the whole other layer to that and I don't know how much you know about this Dennis but obviously we'll be uh, like on me head not off me head <laughs> It, 1990, when New Order were putting World in Motion together, Keith Allen's sole mission was to try and get a drugs reference into the official yeah, World yeah. Cup song. So it was, you know, E is for England, England is for E, which obviously they spotted a mile away. <laughs> he nearly got away with We'll All Be in Ecstasy When We're in Italy. He genuinely, <laughs> that, that stayed in the song for far longer than it should. So the fact that he comes round and he gets this chance and it's off me head, son. There's there's another gag there, and this is what I mean about the clever list. There's there's lots of these things from you know modern English football history that it references in a really quite quite clever way. The the one that always gets me as well, it's, you know, for the love of God, please go. You know, the newspaper headline. And when one of it's Phil Jupiter, I think, shouts it at him at one of the press conferences, that's obviously, you know, the Bobby Robson, the very mm. famous Bobby Robson front page, for the love of Allah, yeah. please go. And of course, you know, Phil, Phil Jupiter is pretty much literally playing Rob Shepherd. Yes. The yeah. role that Rob Shepherd has in Impossible Job. Yeah. Cheer up, Rob. Cheer up. <laughs> Smile, Rob. Smile. Um, yeah, so it it's this is what I mean about the sort of marketing and people not understanding how clever it is and how I mean there's some quite like deep cut stuff in there, you know. There's there's stuff that that I pick up on, but I consider myself like a slight obsessive, you know, it's it's so it's there there's lots and lots of this sort of thing and the the Tonka Gaza stuff, there are so many things in there that are direct or um very clear allusions to some Gaza stories anyway that you know, like the infamous bath moment, there is a real life parallel to that, which we won't go into. <laughs> um and you know, there there's just there's lots of these these little these little nods and winks that the the more I watch it and the more distance I have from it, the more I appreciate those things. I think. Mm. Just on the on the song, just quickly before we move away from that, because I genuinely I wish it had come out as a proper England. Song it's a good song. I think it's great. But do you know who the lead vocalist on it is? Uh, no, couldn't it's, tell you. It's a fourteen-year-old Lily Allen. Uh, because you know that you know the, the the line about one of Atomic Kitten being ill. Um, yes, that was actually true. One of Atomic Kitten was ill when they came to film it, and in order to film it, they did literally. They went to a studio. They treated it as if they were recording an England World Cup song. So they went to the studio. All of that footage is from the day that they filmed them recording the song. Um, but one of Atomic Kitten was ill, so the vocals weren't strong enough. So Keith Allen got Lily Allen to record vocals for it. Yeah, but they, you see, again talking about the level of detail, you know, 
the bit on the coach going to the first game of the World Cup, going mm. to Egypt. There's it, there's quite um, I mean again it's sort of fairly deep dive stuff, but there's quite a famous bit of footage before England played Ireland in 1988 in the Euros, where Jim Rosenthal is literally on the coach live uh, reporting back for ITV in the warm-up to the game. And as they're driving, like, Kenny Sampson's doing various uh, uh, impressions. Uh, I think it's Waddle, is it Waddle who's playing cards and all that. And that little coach drive to the Egypt game, I am almost positive they are replicating <laughs> or trying to replicate footage from... That little that little piece mm. of camera that basically Jim Rosenthal did because it's just almost uncanny. If you ran them side by side, I think you'd even see like the card game is in the same place in the coach, and you know, it, I don't know. It's there. There are little things like that that you. I I just don't think I'm sort of looking too deep in. I think there's definitely been a massive level of research has gone into this, and it has come from a place of genuine affection but also a complete understanding of what the FA was at the time what the press was at the time what the England job itself was at the time and it it becomes as I said the more distance I have from it it becomes quite a fascinating little snapshot uh, like a little time capsule to be honest Mm. do you do you find Dennis as obviously not an England fan and someone who's not as immersed in England football that um, I mean, I don't want to go so far as to say like, is that a barrier? Um, or but do you, is it is it harder to get into it the way that that Dave has because of that? No, I I don't think nationality would be a bar to that. And may I think I will watch it with the um, with, with the, the DVD commentary now when I go back because you know I I'm just as immersed in English football. You know, most like it's such it's English football is at saturation levels here too, and yeah, I mean, I don't of, mean to disparage your knowledge yeah, of English football. I know, none, none taken, but it, you know, it, it's just the if if I if I watch it again, I think maybe those references would would be more apparent to me, and maybe I was watching it a bit too superficially. Uh, mm. I I did think all right, the Phil Jupiter was a very convincing hack. Uh, certainly, <laughs> and um, I, I, I know maybe maybe it's it would have been a bit too on the nose, but I would have liked that satellite link up interview. Um, you know, with 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 Gabby Yarath and and Barry Venison, if they had made it more like the two Ronnie's sketch. You know, the, the mass yeah, mind one. that's one of those yeah. where it's like the the joke's been done, and if you're going to yeah. do that, you have to get a funnier joke out yeah. of it, and that that seems a bit flat yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I felt I felt the presentation of the TV studio was just a bit too cheap, and I know obviously it's a bit too cheap, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's one of them. You can tell they literally had a day to shoot. Yeah, yeah, and with Gabby Logan. And I, with d- I do Venison. enjoy that. I, I enjoy that they've got. Gabby Logan or, or Yorath as she was then and, and, and Barry Venison. They I think I think they're the right kind of duo to pick for this. I think it yeah. pitches it well. I, I, uh, would agree. I think I think her performance is good. I mean she's a bit cheesy with it, but I think that's kind of deliberate. And her bit when she's running through the footage from like previous World Cups and and the terrible like they are deliberately terrible presenter jokes, I think is, is quite yeah. good. Yeah. 
Um, uh, well, and I like the way that the director does talk on the commentary about how they sort of they they were deliberately leaning into the suggestions of a little bit of an undercurrent of of sexual tension between Gabby Yorath and Barry Venison. So. <laughs> <laughs> but did you did you sort of pick up on things, Dennis? Like at the end when they return to the airport, just how similar again some of the some of the wider angles are and some of the angles of the of as they go to the airport just how similar that was to the homecoming of 1990 i think they actually specifically use some of that footage as well i think mixed in there is literally footage from then yeah yeah well it's the same airport isn't it it's stansted isn't it uh, i wouldn't have been as familiar with the england team's homecoming in 1990 uh, because the only homecoming i'm aware of from 1990 is of you know the champions ireland so you know, <laughs> um, as a, as an Irishman, you you must have enjoyed the airport scene. Though, I I, I did write that down. That that was a very <laughs> funny line. England B team. It was good. Yeah, <laughs> that whole scene is yeah, yeah. fantastic. It, it it's it's completely unbelievable, but it it's it's it, it's just <laughs> funny. Like, um, I I'm going to offer just while just before we move off the subject of the film's presentation of of England and English football. I'm going to offer a bit of a criticism, and I don't know if anyone else agrees with me that the film has a bit of a problem, and it's a problem that fictional football often has, and I find it, and we probably talked about it a bit when we were talking about football comics. Um, if your world is fictional, you kind of have to wholeheartedly lean into that. And I don't mind, like, having Pele, for example, because, you know, Pele can still have existed in your fictional world. And I would not want to lose the Pele material from this film because he's fantastic. Uh, But showing footage of the 1998 World Cup um, when you're talking about Argentina just makes you go, well, why aren't David Beckham and Michael Owen in the England team anymore? And that was a question I had as well. Uh, when exactly did Cope take over as manager? Because <laughs> you've Keegan on the wall um, at Lancaster Gate, so you know it, it. So it goes up to to that that game. So if Keegan was the manager, are we to assume that the England Germany game really happened at Wembley and England <laughs> conceded exactly the same goal twice in the space of a few months? <laughs> yeah. it, it, that, that was a question that, that, you know, it's not unique to this film because no. in the West Wing in the early seasons, I think there was a picture of Bill Clinton on the wall and there <laughs> completely should not have been. It's always going to be a problem when you have fiction, but I think I think the fact that this film makes such a feature out of a couple of specific references to recent things, and it's just it would just be stronger if it if it didn't have that. But actually, I tell you, it, it's relation to to recent history. I think is, and that does bring me on to something else. I I was going to ask you guys and talk about, which is, so this film does take the tack very much of English football as this kind of archaic and crumbling institution and you know other than the fact that obviously the team do eventually do quite well at the world cup there's there's not a lot that that i think is very hopeful about its its presentation of uh of the state of english football but i i want to read out this is a quote from uh i think it is from steve barron the director or it might be from one of the writers i should have noted down who it was um talking about how obviously this film there was there was a long writing period for this film and i think that's why a lot of it is rooted in the early 90s is that it had been being worked on since the mid 90s um and so it's from that perspective of england keep on failing um 
But then this quote says, so bizarrely, when the film actually came out in 2001, Sven-Juran Eriksson was in charge and he was at the height of his pomp. Everyone had become, because obviously it came out in September 2001, so I don't know if it literally got released before or after the 5-1, but it was it would have been around that time. Uh, so he said, everyone had become convinced that it had all changed now, that we were going to be successful and continental about it all. This bungling uselessness was all in the past. So the time it came out, almost to the month, it felt like we'd kind of missed the boat. Everything felt like it was going to be all modern and new and professional. The wheels weren't going to to come off and we weren't going to have disasters but that wasn't the case that's why people come back to it so often because the same disasters continue to happen and i think that's really interesting because i, I think that shows you that in 2001 this was or in late 2001 this wasn't the right film to come out about an england team and i wonder if that contributed to it not catching people's imagination whereas you know in 2006 uh, or you know kind of particularly in 2010 it was pretty much a perfect, you know, summary of England just having no direction. So, what do you feel about it, Dave? Watching it in 2019, when all of a sudden, for the last year, compared with the previous decade, we're actually kind of hopeful and positive about England. Yeah, well, this is what I mean. I, I it it becomes like a time capsule, but the way because they sort of cherry pick from basically. I'd say from about 1986, probably from ni- the 1986 to about 1990, well, probably just before Hoddle got there in truth, because they cherry-pick large aspects of sort of the character and the story from that period of England management. It, it is a time capsule. I mean, Mike even says it himself on the plane on the way home that he's, he's a footballing dinosaur. And it is... It it is odd to sit here as an England fan. Apologies, Dennis, <laughs> but to sit here as an England fan and say, "Well, we are actually good." I know we're sitting here at a moment in time where we've had a, a, an indifferent couple of games recently, but we are we're on a forward trajectory and we're finally embracing modern football. But this film was. I I think you're right, but I think don't sort of overestimate the 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 very recent history. We had had that five one year, but we were still the side that completely bumbled Euro two thousand. So you know we managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. What twice at Euro two thousand? Mm. So I, we were not. I remember the 5-1 I remember the feelings around that time and I remember it was the kick off of all the the real golden generation stuff but there was still a feeling that all the same problems persisted so as I said I, I I think now it's a wonderful little time capsule and it's I mean, even when it goes into the hooliganism, one of the things I really like about Mike himself is he outright condemns the hooliganism, you know, when he's and it then turns into obviously a joke sequence. <laughs> but he out, you know, he completely condemns it. He smacks the bigot, you know. That's that's the fallout with with uh, Lonnie. He smacks him. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he is. Through it all, he might be a footballing dinosaur, but he's still a good bloke, you know, yeah. a good, solid bloke. And they could have gone another way with it, you see. They could have really lent into some of the things that were floating around about, 
uh, people like Terry Venables, yeah. Brian Clough. I don't want to go into it because <laughs> you, unbelievably, you still have to allegedly some of those things twenty years later. But they could have gone down that route with it, and I'm so glad that they didn't. No, they don't. He's 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 straight down the line, and yeah, you know, he's, he's sort of. Um, it doesn't mean he's not flawed, um, but I I think it's a really key part of making this film work is that you you root for Mike mm. um you know and i think it's again i think that is a it's one of those things that i think looking back on the impossible job you know kind of at the time that it came out everyone was so negative about graham taylor that the the prevailing view about that documentary was that it showed what a hapless idiot graham taylor was yeah now go and back watch and watch it, back it now, now yeah and it shows you that he's a good man trying to do the best job he can in terrible circumstances, surrounded by a pack of baying arseholes who who don't deserve to have him as as a yeah. manager. And I think you know the the parallels that this film has with Ted. There are little things like um, uh, it's in the and it's probably it's probably partly just a clever trick. Uh, to stop them having to show a, or shoot a goal, but the the second Poland goal in the first game at Wembley, uh, and the camera is just on Mike, and it just follows Mike watching and watching and watching and watching, and then turning round, and it's so similar to a very similar moment in Impossible Job where the camera yeah. is just on Taylor while he's yeah. watching, and you oh, can't see what's oh, happening on the pitch. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a goal. That's a goal. Um, yeah. And yeah, and you do just get that that similar. And I absolutely think that was that was the right way to play it. And I absolutely think Ricky Tomlinson was, you know, the the right casting for that character. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody else doing it. Really. I think the, this film, and I, Dennis, I think you'll have to agree with this. The single best piece of acting in this film is halftime of the Mexico game. Oh. God. Which remains one of my favourite minutes of any comedy film ever. It is, it is wonderful. The narration straight after England go on to lose four 0 yeah. just makes me laugh so much. It's, it's the icing on the cake. It, it makes the. I think. I think that final line makes the scene about twice as funny as it already is. <laughs> what that scene is, what that minute is, is it's the. It's again. It's writers who have watched the Peter Reid documentary, <laughs> who've watched the Neil Warnock documentary, who've watched the John Sitton documentary, and rather than turn Mike into some like horrible pastiche of any of them, they manage to do it in a minute and do turn it into a joke. Where again, you just you, it doesn't reflect on his character if you know what I mean you don't come out of that thinking he's a bad guy because again it's just a brilliant piece of acting because in the moment he is just so he just loses it to such an extent that it's just pure passion and pride it's not just like a worn up rant I just want to get 10% out of somebody so I'm going to sit here and call him, you know, scream yeah, at him, no, and call him all the names under the sun. By, by what he's yeah, seen. he's yeah. genuinely hurt by what's happened. He's had enough. He's not going to put up with it. England go on to lose four <laughs> 0 <laughs> And I also loved uh, when he's getting on the bus and they're showing abuse at him, and he's like, "Come on, <laughs> yeah. you know, give, give us something. Be constructive." <laughs> and then then they're giving advice, and it says. Fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. This film has got so many... If this film came out now, right, it would have so many memeable moments, yeah. wouldn't it? I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, in, and I think within certain football fan circles, you can say the words three cheers for Ramirez 
and yeah. and they'll get what you're on about because I love that as well. This thing, so many of the best. I mean, I like the first half of the film, but I I think it really comes alive when they get to Brazil. And yeah, I, th- I think so many of the strongest scenes are, are when they're in Brazil. And yeah, that three cheers for Ramirez is fantastic. Yeah. It is, you know. But yeah, it's so I think that to an extent, it's a meme. And on 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 a, a certain football forum that I won't name, but that some of us are familiar with, it's quite a well regarded and, and fondly remembered film. And you can reference it, and people will get what you're on about. Like there is a, there's a user on the forum whose name is is Tonka as the sixpence. So I always remember spotting. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it, that's that's what's so frustrating is there's so many of that stuff that you, you're right. It would be, I think if you if you released this now and it didn't have any of the baggage associated with it, there's so much that people would latch onto as as these mm. great little scenes. But uh, but if you did release it now, you wouldn't have the rivals that net sponsorship. Sadly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd I'd probably cut the trans panic joke as well. Um, yeah, there is a bit of that, but it—it's not—it's—it's not the worst example I've seen of it in a in a film of or 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 a comedy of of that era. But no, and I I think again you you often have to weigh these things, and when you look at like I said, you Mike eventually gets to a point where he will not put up with the bigot anymore. Yeah, and you know it has a go at him, and it, it I think it puts more net good out into the world yeah. than bad. I, I would agree, uh, and I I remain open to uh, reappropriating my opinion of it. <laughs> um, but um, and and there was something I should have watched and didn't get around to yet, and it might improve my opinion even more. But uh, there's an alternate ending, isn't there? Yeah. So the and I'd actually I so I had a bit of a misapprehension about what the original plan for the ending was because I thought I'd. I thought I'd seen that the original plan for the ending was that they beat Argentina, as they do, and then they immediately get knocked out in the next round. But actually, the plan was always that the the net result of England's World Cup is what you see, which is that they get all the way to the semi-final and get beaten by Brazil. Um, But they did shoot a different ending, um, which they just felt didn't quite tonally cap it off right. Um, and that's why you have that final scene on the plane and they have to write in the line about him having a beard. And the reason for that is that Ricky Tomlinson had already started shooting something else where he needed the beard. So when they brought him back to shoot this extra scene on the plane and at the airport, he had to have the beard. So they had to have the whole thing about, oh, I wouldn't shave if we if we got through to the knockout stages. Um, but the original idea was, so so the film kind of ran through, the, the alternate ending, which you can see on the DVD, uh, runs through... Um, the events of the rest of the tournament in pretty much the same fashion with some kind of slightly different um, footage and stuff. Um, but then it kind of follows people... Um, in the, It do- doesn't have the whole thing on the plane. Follows various characters in a little bit... It does your kind of little documentary thing of, you know, this is where the characters were months later. We lose, sadly, the gag of Gary Wackett goes on and becomes one of the gladiators. Um, <laughs> and Rufus Smalls, it says, gets his captaincy back on a question of sport um i think there's, there's i think there's one or two others there's the brilliant one of tonka oh who of course become yeah a manager hit tonka has become a manager dennis of a pub yeah there's a nice <laughs> little scene with, with, with tonka running a pub and doing an interview um and then yeah mike um has, has quit the england job and moves with his family to become the manager of bolivia um but it's just that what it shows is it shows them just there in south america 
um, just relaxed and not under pressure. And so, so it's not a suggestion of, oh, he's failed at the England job and he's gone and taken this terrible job. It's he's got nothing else to prove and he's gone with his family to somewhere where they're happy and relaxed and, and living a nice life. And but it also it also works on dual levels, doesn't it? Because obviously it, it also echoes Reevee leaving going to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think it is intended as a bit of a deliberate reference to that. Yeah, isn't it? and and not only that, I I want I was I was watching this today. I wonder if they did have one eye on the TV series, Seb, or, or potentially mm. doing something else with Mike, and they didn't want to close it off because it it literally finishes Dennis with them basically saying and he lived happily happily ever after you know okay, that's yeah that that's the thing and watching it again I don't know I I just had knowing we won't go into the TV series because it was absolutely awful um but I don't you think it do was want... horrendous but I think it if we're ever going to cover it it deserves to be covered properly so yeah yeah it lost it lost what Mike Bassett actually was yeah and I do I did wonder watching that I thought "Mm, I just wonder if somebody had one eye half on a sequel half on a tv series half just wanting to leave it open Mm. but I you know I quite the alternate ending is better but I quite like the ending we've got as well because you know even there they've they've taken they've taken the time to do the airport stuff and do it properly and have the parallels with 1990 and all that sort of thing so it's at no point does it feel tacked on or rushed or something they've knocked together in a day and i i i appreciate that really yeah um so of that i mean we talked a little bit about Ricky Tomlinson and, and how good he is uh, across the kind of the rest of the cast. And I know Dave, you, you made reference to uh, uh, not being super impressed with Bradley Walsh, but are there any other kind of supporting roles for either of you that, that stand out in terms of performances? Uh, Jeff at the, at the FA. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I forget. I forget his name. He was, of course he was Melin Benedorm. And when somebody says his name, I'll remember it straight away. He plays it with the right level of sort of indifference. Um, and when he stomps down to Paul Mike off the top of the bar, he gets it just, just about right. Mm. Just about right. Uh, Jeffrey Hutchings, uh, is that actor's name. He plays Jeffrey yes. Lightfoot. Uh, sadly passed away yeah. in 2010. He did. He did. Uh, yeah. At the age of 71. But it's just I, I should I should say Bradley Walsh's performance doesn't like sort of take me out of the film or anything like that. It's just a very sort of leaden-footed performance. That's all. I mean, as regards the rest of the cast, um, we we mentioned him, but I, I think Phil Jupiter does a good. Given that he's not known for doing a lot of acting, I think Phil Jupiter does a good job. Uh, I love Philip Jackson, so I love every moment that he's on screen as as Lonnie. I, oh it's yeah, just, it's a shame he's kind of not in it enough, really. Yeah, um, but it, it's good. It's good that um, it's good that we we see from the very start he's a complete spiv. Like when he sells yeah. um, <laughs> sells Mike the the banger, you know, we know he's a bit of a wrong one. Yeah, and then you've got various cast members from Dream Team, uh, the likes of uh, Robbie G and uh, and Terry Kylie uh, filling out the players. But I actually think, aside from kind of those main people, I think where the film does its best casting is in the playing themselves guest stars, uh, because I think I think um, Martin Bashir does a does a fine job of. You know, for the most part, he is just playing himself straight. But there are a couple of little moments where he gets to send himself up a bit, 
Um, and as I say, I, I think that I mean the fact that they come back to it over the credits. I think his bit with Pele is wonderful because yeah. you've got Pele. You know the, this whole thing of like who do you think might win the World Cup and Pele's yeah. rattling off, and the way that my Bashir just goes. Apart from them, it's like anybody else, and you just go, oh yeah, sure, you know maybe it could be like a, an African nation or United States. He says Yugoslavia at one point, which is a little <laughs> bit weird, uh, and then just you know they, what about England? England qualify? Um, and the combination of that and his bit with the oh Christ, it's the English. Um, I, I really like what they do with given that you know this is Pele in that you know later phase of life when he will turn up at the, the the opening of an envelope um you know it, i don't think it's hard to get pele to cameo in something but i think what they really do is get the most out of him um so you just have to leave a trail of pound coins yeah. to where you want him to go <laughs> yeah uh and then obviously yeah you know the, as, as we kind of talked about people like keith allen and 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 um gabby logan and um i think do they there must be i don't know who does kind of bespoke commentary for them i know you you get alan green on the radio for the for the Martin Tyler goal. as well. Yeah. Uh, is it? Yeah. It's, oh, it's Martin Tyler in the Argentina game, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, there's some nice kind of bits of of veracity uh, there as well. Um, I was surprised to discover on the commentary um, that it is Ronaldo. Uh, oh, sorry, or rather, not not that it is Ronaldo. We know it is Ronaldo, uh, but I thought the Ronaldo bit was an old bit of footage that they'd repurposed for the sake of the joke when he when he doesn't know who Mike Bassett is. Uh, but they did actually manage to grab, for some reason, they were able to get a few minutes with original Ronaldo. Uh, and so that is bespoke footage for the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can we can we talk a little bit about favourite moments? That was that was my, my, my last section that I that I planned to come on to next was yes, if we sort of having talked a lot about how it works as a football film and how it relates to football, I wanted to just talk about it as a comedy and the quality of the jokes. And to just talk about some favourite moments, really. Yeah, so go for it. I wish my dad could have seen me. He was like a father figure to me. Just (laughs) such a root one joke, but gets me every time. I love the absolutely needless jibe at Scotland. That makes me laugh every (laughs) single time. It's just such a such a needless thing. So for for those who don't know, Scotland get knocked out in the first round of the World Cup by Ethiopia. Yes, um, and it's it's such a throwaway line, but this genuinely makes me laugh every time, and a lot of people miss it. But it it's when he first comes to the FA, and Jeff is sort of part welcoming, and he says, "Oh, Sir Ted would have loved to have been here, but it's dialysis day." <laughs> and it, in one line, I've never heard something sum up our FA quite so accurately at that point in time. I think we, we we have covered a lot of them because we've covered things like the uh, the born in the first half of the year sequence. Uh, as I say, kind of a lot of the stuff in Brazil, the Mark Lawrence and joke. I mean, I think generally, yeah. I think the sports um, science center stuff, the film's flagging a little bit at that point. Yeah. Uh, although I do like Wacko getting nutted by the uh, the flying football thing, but I do like the thing of they have the dribbling machine that replicates the the dribbling skill of the greatest footballers. So it's Pele, Maradona, Mark Lawrenson. Well, we yeah. run out of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, I like as well how just uh, the simplicity of uh, oh, Smallsy, you've got Charlton's lucky peg. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and like it, it could have actually inspired him to get back go- scoring yeah. goals. He thought it was Bobby's one. I was like, oh yeah, Jackie's. <laughs> 
I do enjoy actually just the sheer. We we didn't talk about it when we were talking about the match action, but uh, Smallsy and the penalty because that's the film quite nicely setting up. You know, oh, this is how England heroically get to the World Cup. Smallsy's going to break his duck yeah, and score this yeah, penalty yeah. and just wax it over the bar. Chris, yeah, Waddle's and immediately puts the immediately puts the speed and distance yeah. graphic on it as well. That's superb. Yeah. That's a lovely touch. Well, we haven't at no point yet have we said the words four four fucking two. Go on then, Dave. Talk about that. <laughs> well, I, the thing is about that scene is the way it's played. It, it. I mean, it's actually. <laughs> it does get you going emotionally. It does get <laughs> to you, and part of that is, I think, the way Ricky Tomlinson plays it, and it's the way. He starts with his eyes shut and starts very quietly when he goes into mm. the poem, If. And how he builds up a little bit and he opens his eyes and then he starts glancing around the room. And it, again, it's a really good piece of acting because you can see the sort of spine come back into him. He's had to come into this press conference in apologetic mode, but then you can see him growing as he goes through this poem. And then, of course, he gets to the end, and it's England will be playing for for fucking two. And he gets out. And one of the things he I love is he just walks straight through the journalists when he leaves. He walks straight through. Because at that point, he's not going to take any crap. Mm. And the thing is, it's the moment everybody remembers from this film, but... It still works. It still works as a cinematic moment. The line four four fucking two is funny, but it's not necessarily even played as a gag. It's just funny in retrospect, mm. and it's yeah. I I I think it really really works. I I think it really does. And I'm quite interested, Dennis. What did you actually think of that scene? I think maybe if is a little bit cliched, but. Maybe it wasn't as cliched back then. Well, it's interesting that again they they do talk. They have talked about the fact that they wrote that as being the pivotal scene before the nineteen ninety eight World Cup and the deadline. Okay. Michael Owen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably a a, a a question of freshness. Maybe um, I wasn't carried away in a wave of emotion, but again, I'm not English, uh, so maybe that's another thing. I, I thought you don't a while. Have this tendency to get over hysterical and emotional about <laughs> things. <laughs> I, I I I can't confirm or deny that, but yeah, like I could see it was a good scene, but you know it it was it didn't have the same impact as maybe it could or would have had. I I remember the first time I watched the film, I was actually expecting a joke at the end of that because of the scene earlier where he's got the embroidered version of it. Yeah, yeah, you'll be a Mason. And the first time I watched this, I honestly expected that he was going to end that stirring, rousing, emotional rendition by saying, and which is more, you'll be a Mason. I was expecting that too, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that they went with something that was better than my expected joke, but still. I realise when thinking on that scene as well that we haven't really talked about um, Amanda Redman in the in the Penny Race role, um, but <laughs> other than the fact that she's 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 good at the job she's given, I, I don't think there's a lot to say about that character. That... Maybe maybe just a little bit underutilised in that yeah. we're not shown enough of her journey to being such a discontented wife. Yeah. Although that said, actually, she does get 
one of my favourite lines and deliveries now that I think about it, which is, I can't remember which club it is, it might be Crew, but when she's talking about his journey, as so he went yeah. on loan, uh, and then Crew said they could keep him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's yeah. just a really yeah. nice... It's It's simultaneously a sort of that's not how you talk about it in football terms, but also an absolutely perfect summary of that situation of nobody wanted him. It's just a lovely little lie. They said yeah. they could keep yeah. him. <laughs> and the, the also, the way she delivers the two words, the glamour, is just Yeah, superb. yeah, yeah. Oh, and actually, God, you know what? I've just said that we, we haven't talked about it and she doesn't get much. Another one of the best lines in the film, uh, when she's talking about Mike's dream being chased around Wembley Stadium by a giant Bobby Moore saying, look at what you've done, you bloody idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that gets referenced in the alternate ending, saying that he, that he has a better recurring dream now involving Bobby Moore. Uh, so all in all, I think obviously, Dennis. Aside from the fact that you you know you, you disappointed us at the start by uh, not f- immediately fawning over it the way that we do, which I, I did kind of expect because I think I think you are in line with the prevailing view. Um, but I think I think at, at least we're all agreed that if nothing else, the reputation that it's got as just being a kind of lame early two thousands British comedy that treats football in a really crappy way, the way a lot of British films do isn't really justified like I, th- I think i think if nothing else and while there are things that we can pick we can say that this is a film that does a good job of representing football oh yeah i would i would definitely agree with that absolutely and even though you said it didn't make you laugh that much we've gone through and pointed out a load of really <laughs> good jokes so <laughs> but yeah and i know i said i laughed at some and there were others i groaned at and i think that rufus smalls couldn't hit the side of a renault espace <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I do like, I referenced it at the start, but I do like that bit about the fact that a car salesman is so xenophobic he doesn't know <laughs> that an Opal is a Vauxhall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just... Um, I want to tell you what as well, sorry, one more thing on, on kits, Dennis. You've got to at least admire the, the accurate Norwich and Leicester kits in the opening scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um <laughs> The bit where Mike comes out and holds the board up with, with zero on as well is fantastic. Yeah, and they they got good use out of their Wembley access there as well. And we haven't even talked yeah. about the open top bus thing, which is a, a nice little. As I say, I think generally the first half isn't as good as the second half, but there is some some nice stuff in that opening. Um, it's just a good film. I just really, really, and I think it's just really likable. And again, I think the marketing made it look not likable. The marketing made it look. A bit cynical, and it's it's really not. It's there's there isn't cynicism in this film. It's a it's a nice film about a good bloke being England manager struggling against a load of crap, and then ultimately doing quite well. And I think that's a I think that's a nice thing to have. Mm. Agreed. But speaking of managers who are nice guys, put <laughs> into terrible, difficult situations, um. We need to come on to Somehow I Manage. Well, actually, unfortunately, we're not going to be coming on to Somehow I Manage, uh, which is a shame because that was a really good segue past Seb. Um, But yes, no, unfortunately, um, technical issues meant that we hadn't actually been able to do the next step of playing the game 
when we initially recorded this episode. Uh, so the intent was to record the segment separately after the main recording, hence me throwing over to myself uh, the way I planned to there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those issues have persisted and also due to some other issues, uh, we haven't been able to get the game sufficiently played and then a segment recorded uh, in time to get this episode out and we didn't want to delay the episode um, for the sake of the comedy closing segment. So uh, somehow I managed will return. Um, you'll get to find out on a future episode uh, how Dave has done in the, the next stint as manager of our fictional Nottingham Forest team in Chapman 9798. Uh, but unfortunately, we won't have the chance to directly compare him to Mike Bassett on this episode. So apologies for that. And now I'm going to throw back over to a completely oblivious past version of myself. So that was Somehow I Manage. Uh, I hope that all went very well. And uh, that was... Mike Bassett, England manager, on the latest episode of Beyond the Touchline. Uh, really hope you enjoyed listening to that. Um, hope if you if you haven't seen the film, it's inspired you to watch it. If you have, it's inspired you to go back and re-watch it and re-evaluate it, as I'm sure Dennis will be doing immediately after the episode. If this is your first time listening to us and you enjoyed this and want to hear more, you can find all of the episodes of the show at beyondthetouchline.co.uk. Uh, you'll find links there to subscribe to us. Uh, we are on Acast. You can find us on the Acast app. Obviously, we're on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and we're also on Spotify. You can find us on there and generally in your podcast app of choice. Uh, but all the links are there, on, uh, as well as direct episode listening embeds on beyondthetouchline.co.uk. And there's a link to our Twitter account, which is BTTL Podcast. Uh, if you've got anything you want to say about the show, the podcast, things that we've covered, things that we might cover, please do get in touch with us. Uh, I'm at Seb Patrick on Twitter. Dave is at David Hartrick. And Dennis is at Dennis underscore Hurley. So again, if you want to shout at us about our opinions, please do feel free to get in touch there. Uh, and if you are enjoying the show, standard uh, plea for a podcast book, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes because that really does help. Uh, but apart from that, um, that's about it from us. I don't think we've decided, once again, what our next episode is going to be. Um, so we'll just leave that as a nice surprise. Uh, but we hope you will join us for whatever it is when we come back in about a month or so's time. Uh, so thank you from and to Dave. Thank you. And from and to Dennis. Thank you for having me on. And hopefully I'll be allowed on again, even though my feelings for Mike Bassett aren't as strong as the pair of you. Thanks guys, this that was very enjoyable. I've been Sir Patrick and we'll see you again soon. Goodbye. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.